Offset Patterns listeners, welcome back to another episode. My name is Will Comperto. My guest today is Marissa Siemens of Johns Hopkins University. Marissa, thank you for coming on. Thanks for having me. Our topic today is opioid use and abuse, specifically on how availability in one's household of opioids affects opioid consumption. Looking at a recent paper Marissa co-authored on the subject in the JAMA Internal Medicine Journal from the American Medical Association. So before we go into your research specifically, uh, I want to paint a background generally about the facts around opioids in America today that illustrate the change in use and abuse and fatality. So what are the signs that there is what is commonly referred to now as an opioid crisis? Sure. Um, So when people talk about the opioid crisis, they tend to refer to the fact that opioid-related overdose and deaths have increased substantially over the past two decades. Um, Opioids are some of the most commonly prescribed medications in in America to treat chronic and acute pain, with hydrocodone with acetaminophen, the leading drug dispensed by U.S. retail pharmacies in the past few years. The U.S. consumes over 90% of the world's supply of hydrocodone while comprising only a fraction of the world's population. So you can see that you know a lot of the use uh, is concentrated in the United States and not so much in other countries. A lot of the increase in opioid use has occurred over the past two decades. And over the same time period, opioid overdoses have quadrupled to the point where now 91 Americans die every day from an opioid overdose. Now, this includes from prescription opioids as well as illegal forms of opioids like heroin and, um, and fentanyl. Now, use and abuse of opioids um, goes across all dem- demographics, the educated, the uneducated, rich, poor, men and women. But what tend to be the strong predictors of opioid use um, demographically or geographically speaking? Right. So here it might be helpful to clarify the fact that, you know, when people talk about opioids, they're referring to both prescription opioids and heroin and fentanyl, which are um, fentanyl is uh, not is legal, um, but there are also illegally uh, developed manufactured forms of fentanyl as well. Um, And those two the demographics that use opioids, prescription opioids, and the demographic that use that uses uh, heroin and fentanyl are quite different. Um, and so, this, this when you ask about predictors of opioid use, um, now if you were talking about the predictors of prescription opioid use, include uh, age. Um, older people tend to use prescription opioids um, more frequently than younger uh, younger adults because they have more pain comorbidities. Uh, prescription opioids tend to be expensive, and so they are more likely to be prescribed to uh, those with um, with health insurance. And but if you were asking about heroin and fentanyl, well, uh, folks who don't who are are of lower education and do not have health insurance are more likely to to be using these forms of opiates. Um, so it's interesting you bring up how you know the the kinds of use. Um, can differ across different demographic variables um, because it seems like there is one general narrative um, in the media that people read about about um, what the opioid crisis looks like. You know, when I picture it, uh, it is a West Virginia or Ohio rusty old manufacturing town uh, where they've lost all the jobs and they're kind of just um, poor and unemployed. But 
there have to be a lot of other reasons going on about why this crisis has seemed to arise in the last few decades. Uh, so what are some of the, the kind of big, popular, or most convincing explanations for this huge increase in opioids over the last uh, couple decades? Increases in, the, in prescription opioid use have been attributed to several factors. Um, first, there were changes in clinical guidance, clinical guidelines for the treatment of chronic non-cancer pain, such as back or neck pain. Um, but prior to the 1980s, opioids were prescribed only for short-term use, so for example, to treat surgery, um, trauma, or extensive burns. Um, and, and this was because doctors were afraid that opioids could lead to uh, tolerance and dependence um, from prolonged use. But beginning in the 1980s, uh, there were pain specialists and other advocacy groups that stressed that you know, chronic non-cancer pain could be treated with opioids, um, and that opioids were could be safe and effective if used appropriately. But they used evidence from really short-term clinical trials among cancer patients to to make these claims. Um, I think at, at the same time there were campaigns uh, to bring more awareness to the undertreatment of pain and to treat pain as the fifth vital sign, um, and that there was a fundamental right to pain relief that opioids should be used more frequently as a more humane alternative. And so a lot of these social cultural factors um, led to, were at least um, part of the reason why opioids became more frequently prescribed over the past two decades. Now at the same time, there was aggressive pharmaceutical marketing that was actually ultimately illegal um, that promoted particular opioid products to physicians such as Oxycontin. Um, And so there was it was basically the perfect storm to kind of create this crisis of overprescribing of opioids. This led to a lot of opioids being prescribed for minor surgeries where really the relative effectiveness of opioids compared to non-opioid pain relievers such as ibuprofen um, were not established. And this kind of led to a lot of opioids being left over in household medicine cabinets which kind of create opportunities for drug sharing and drug diversion um, and and, mis- and misuse. Uh, earlier, when you mentioned how uh, the U.S. is kind of exceptional in its um, consumption of opioids, so before the 1980s, when um, pain was under undertreated, as you said, um, was the U- U.S. more in line with uh, other high-income countries? Now, obviously, the U.S. healthcare system is this messy mishmash of private and public sector stuff going on. It's really unique compared to every other healthcare system in the world. But what makes the U.S. so unique um, to set the circ- to set uh, the circumstances right for this this opioid crisis? Yeah, that's a great question. I really don't know enough about cross country comparisons of of pain and and treatment. But what I do know is that in other countries, um, less potent opioids are prescribed. Um, It's just that hydrocodone and oxycodone, which are some of the strongest opioids, are not as frequently prescribed. Um, They might other countries might prescribe more codeine or tramadol, which are just uh, less potent. Um, Still can be, um, they still have their their relative harms, but they're not as strong as oxycodone oxycodone and hydrocodone. Um, I will mention that, you know, over the time period where opioid prescribing did increase, 
uh, we haven't really seen an, a similar increase in reports of pain. So, so we do see more prescribing without, but for, for, uh, for we see more prescribing for reasons that, uh, that aren't accounted for. This episode of Upset Patterns is brought to you by Payfully. Renting your home or spare room can be a great way to earn some extra income, but actually getting paid can take months. That's where Payfully comes in. Payfully is a safe and secure way to get paid for your upcoming reservations within 24 hours of them being booked. Payfully deposits directly into your bank account, with funds usually available the same day. They work with all the major platforms, Airbnb, VRBO, HomeAway, and others. They've helped thousands of hosts expand their business or cover unexpected expenses. Visit payfullynow.com for your first request absolutely free with code UPSETPATTERNS. That's payfullynow.com, promo code UPSETPATTERNS. Uh, so you mentioned uh, during that time period the, the kind of leftover in the medicine cabinet um, uh, drugs, and this leads us to uh, what your recent recently published paper focuses on, which is if someone in your household um, has opioids, then how does that affect your usage um, or likelihood of usage? So what does your research show about how the increase of availability of opioids uh, via usage of a household member affects opioid use and abuse? So we've known from national surveys that opioids are commonly prescribed and they're also commonly shared between friends and family members. What we didn't know was to what extent living in a household with an opioid user makes one more likely to fill an opioid prescription him or herself, or start using opioids. And so we used a large administrative healthcare database to look at families in the United States with commercial insurance. And we were finding that living in a household with a prescription opioid user makes you a little bit more likely to start using opioids yourself compared to a household with a non-opioid user. Now, the magnitude of this effect was very small, and there could be other reasons to explain this association that we just couldn't account for with our data, such as provider preference for prescribing opioids or prescription drug monitoring. Um, But if this association holds in other types of databases or in other settings, um, it might be a cause for concern. Now, we found about a 1% or just a little less than 1% risk difference uh, in opioid initiation. And this this is small, uh, but if you kind of consider all the the millions of opioids that are prescribed in the United States, it could have a huge public health impact. Over the course of a a population of 300 million people, even 1% um, obviously can make uh, significant uh, usage effects, I suppose. Right. Um, so, and this, this is kind of interesting because like there's a lot of, uh, discussion about how the lifestyle habits of people within your community or network, um, can be sort of contagious in effect. So people that associate with, uh, others with obesity are much more likely to, um, or, you know, if you are hanging around people that exercise a lot and eat well, um, the opposite can happen, which is that you also exercise and eat well. So, do you have any idea on whether this is sort of um, a, uh, a lifestyle contagion effect or whether it's just the access itself, like having the opioids around the house is what is causing an increase in usage? Or is that, is that pretty hard to infer from your, uh, from your research? 
Right. That's really hard to disentangle the the uh, the exact mechanism through which opioid use might, you know, quote, spread within a household. It could be due to shared lifestyle factors. It could be due to having the same healthcare provider with a, you know, preference for prescribing opioids. It's really, we were not able to disentangle those mechanisms with the data we had. Um, the other issue is that people in the same household tend to be similar for you know, a whole host of reasons, and uh, we just can't have. We don't really have great measures with the types of healthcare data that we that we use. Yeah, in these households you looked at, then um, that had opioids versus non, or just the opioid use broadly speaking across the U.S. Has the increased use of opioids substituted for other drugs like alcohol, uh, marijuana, or methamphetamine, or are they kind of being used in addition? So, like. Is the opioid crisis somehow kind of pushing aside, uh, let's say, alcoholism problems, or are, or is it kind of compounding the substance abuse uh, scenario? To my knowledge, it's not a substituting, but I'm not uh, a substance abuse researcher, um, and and so I, I can't give you a, an answer. But my understanding is that it is not a substitute for alcohol or methamphetamines or marijuana. It was just that it was legally prescribed it was and, and and safe people a lot of patients thought because my my doctor is giving it to me it has to be safe opioids really I, I i haven't seen evidence suggesting that opioids are actually substituting for other drugs they are being used in addition to other uh, other dangerous prescription medications such as benzodiazepines which are anti-anxiety medications which when combined with opioids can can uh, lead to um, are associated with higher risk of respiratory depression and ultimately um, death. When the situation is phrased as an opioid crisis, that is a strong implication that there are adverse health effects and that something is wrong, something should be done. So are there any strong policy recommendations um, to mitigate these effects, either discussed in your paper or for the crisis, broadly speaking? Right. I think addressing and combating the opioid crisis requires comprehensive solutions from multiple angles. One of the things that we really need to be careful about is that, you know, there are patients that really benefit from opioids and it it would we don't want to make it harder for them to be able to have the opioids that they need. For example, patients with, uh, for, with, for patients with cancer pain, opioids sometimes are the only medication that they can take uh, to to deal with that kind of pain. Um, however, a lot of most of the opioids that are prescribed in the United States are for conditions that for which there is research suggesting that non-opioids work just as well or even better than opioids to treat the pain. Um, and so prescribers, I think, need to be uh, more educated on the relative harms and benefits of opioids compared to non-opioid pain relievers such as ibuprofen. There are, the other thing is that patients also need to be counseled on safe storage of prescription opioids. Kind of this gets to the to the problem of drug sharing that can occur within households. Um, patients need to be counseled on how unused opioids should be disposed, but sometimes. Physicians don't lack the knowledge of pr proper disposal methods, and also safe disposal sites may also be lacking in communities. So I think there's a lot of room for improvement. And I think ultimately, um, management of acute and chronic pain is not just an issue for an individual patient, but also for families and society. And so I think it, we really need to take a more holistic approach to to com to combat the opioid epidemic. 
So ideally, if it, it were treated as a public health issue, uh, you know, we would perhaps go along with the recommendations you stated. But currently in the policy landscape, you know, there is like this general impulse to, uh, to combat things by making something illegal or just enforcing with, with strict laws. You know, you can, you can see that with uh, abuse in, in other drugs. So in the current policy landscape, um, what, what are different strategies that are being attempted uh, to, to mitigate the effects of the opioid crisis, even if they are really not uh, ideal in, in your eyes? Right. So one of the things that a lot of states have implemented is our, their prescription drug monitoring programs. So uh, physicians, if they want to prescribe an opioid, uh, need to enter this information into a, a state database, or they need to look in the database to see what was had been has been prescribed to a patient before. Um, but this, but prescription, there's a lot of variability in how prescription drug monitoring programs have been implemented across the, the states, um, and some states don't even have them. But there might be a law that they will, at some point, um, implement a prescription drug monitoring program. Um, I, I, at the same time, there are laws to address the opioid epidemic, so it's really hard to disentangle what is really working and what isn't. And so it's a really hard uh it's a really hard problem uh, to understand the the effectiveness of some of these policies. Marissa, thank you for coming on. Thank you so much for having me. This episode of Upset Patterns was hosted by Will Comperl, recorded at Radio Free Jerome Studios in New York, New York. My guest today was Marissa Siemens of Johns Hopkins University. Want to suggest a topic, ask a question, or leave feedback? Email us at upsetpatterns at gmail.com.